the most important thing is to be true to yourself. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. Women's rights are human rights once and for all. We realize the importance of light when we see darkness. America's women are tired of hearing that pay inequality isn't real. Women around the world are not yet always taught by their immediate environment that they are strong, powerful, beautiful, and equal. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Hey, Riveters, it's your friend Sally Smith. Hey, guys, it's Buffy. And welcome to another episode of Can You Believe This Douchebag Is Still President? Slash, thank God, <laughs> amazing women are out there doing cool things so we don't have to jump off a building holding hands together. It's true. We have amazing women doing stuff that we're highlighting all the time, which is very exciting because we love badass ladies. You know who one of my favorite badass ladies is? Who? I'm looking right at her. Oh, <laughs> on FaceTime. You're so sweet. <laughs> you're so sweet. But I think you might have to an announcement to make. Finally. Okay. Well, Riveters, um, as you may have seen on social media, uh, I am officially a candidate for office. Woo-hoo. I'm very excited to say Yay. I'm running. I know I'm excited. I'm running for my state assembly seat here in California, awesome. Assembly District 15. Um, so if you live in North Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond area, Hercules, Pinole, Albany, I'm your lady. Okay. I am your lady. <laughs> so I'm jumping in feet first. I'm so excited about this. So You could have run for a lot of things, I'm sure. Why did you choose to run for this seat and why now? Well, I think now, in my mind, now is a really critical, important moment in our nation's history. It's scary what's happening. I think a lot of people are worried. I am worried too. But what I know is that if you act with true intent and you build a grassroots movement, we can actually change this country, right? I've seen it before and I've experienced it before. Um, Mm -hmm. And this seat opened up. Um, I think, you know... Uh, is it the most convenient time to run when you have a six-month-old daughter? Not necessarily, but I feel really sure. <laughs> I feel <laughs> I feel very like drawn and compelled to do it. Um, in part because I have a six-month-old daughter, right? Um, and I worry about her future. And I think um, California is uniquely situated to pass bold progressive policies that actually impact people's lives. Um, as California goes, so goes the nation in a lot of ways. And so I think we can actually um, achieve things here that actually help help human beings, you know, whether it's economic security for women, whether it's equity for all people. There's a number of kind of progressive issues that I want to run on. I'm going to be talking about paid leave. I'm going to be talking about affordable child care, a whole suite of kind of public policies that impact women and children um, that, quite frankly, California doesn't necessarily lead on in a lot of ways, and we should be. Um, And the truth of the matter is, if you look at California right now, our state legislature um, is comprised of 22 percent women. It's the lowest in 20 years. Um, And this is one of the most progressive states in the country. Um, And yeah, it's that's bullshit. (laughs) I think we can change. So I think there needs to be more women in leadership roles, which we've talked about many, many, many times before. Um, And six percent have. of women have uh, children under the age of 12. So these are our lawmakers that are making our decisions about the cost of childcare, about issues that impact kids, about issues that impact families. And our voice is not being represented in Sacramento, period, um, in the way that it needs to be. So that's a lot of what I want to be talking about and running on um, a lot of the kind of progressive policy things that I'm going to be talking about. And dear God, I know that we've had a lot of discussions like as America slash humans about like, can women have it all? But 
truly, where are you going to find the time? <laughs> like, you have this amazing podcast. You also have, like, I don't know, a daughter, a husband, a job. Yeah. Family, yeah. friends. Like, where where are you going to find the well, time? Well, I think, first of all, I have an amazing husband, which is like, I can't do any of it without my partner in crime, right? Um, that is huge. Um, and I've talked to my mom's going to come down a lot. I've talked to her. She's going to be here spending a lot of time with us. Um, hopefully, Peter mo- Peter's mom will spend some time with us as well. Um, you know, my, my biggest reservation about running was uh, missing time with JoJo, um, which I think is going to be hard. Um, but I also feel like the work that I do now is really for JoJo, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's important. And I have the ability, desire, and interest in doing it. And I think you know, now is for us to step up to the plate. If we've ever wondered, when should I get involved? When should I do something? When should I run for office? When should I become active? Today is the day for people to do that. If not now, then when, right? Right. Um, So now is the time for me to step up to the plate and put myself out there and talk about the vision that I have for not only the people of this district, but for the state and ultimately for the country. Um, And I think I said, you know, like I said, I think we're uniquely situated here in California to actually lead on on public policies that are progressive and that help people. And hopefully, um, you know, we can be kind of a beacon of hope in this dark time that our country's in right now. Well, if it takes a village to elect a Buffy, I want to be in that village. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited about it. And I just, you know, uh, I know we have a lot of um, listeners out there and I would all love your support. Um, My website is BuffyWicks.com. You can go check out. You can go check out. Yeah. No shame. (laughs) You have to, man. No, and whether that's like telling your friends and family that you know live in the area to like look me up and come check me out. I'm going to be doing house parties all across the district um, for the next year and a half, um, knocking on doors and meeting people. Um, If you want to financially contribute, I will take that as well. Um, So I'm just excited about the opportunity and and feel really inspired by a lot of our listeners as well who have like jumped into the fray and, and, and our guests who have all stood up. I mean, we are in a really unique moment in time right now. And I think history will look back on those of us that decided to sit on the sidelines and those of us that decided to step up, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think what people really want to know is like, is this going to change what's going on with the Riveters? And are you going to all of a sudden become like Mr. Talking Points lady? Because <laughs> like, I don't want that. <laughs> well, well, I've been pretty honest my whole life about with who I am. And it's funny because as I've been going through this process of becoming a candidate, part of that is like, you've got to go do a photo shoot and you've got to like film, you know, your, you know, why are you running? And there's all this stuff, build the website and what does your social media feed look like? And there's all this stuff around who are you as a person and what are you going to bring to the table? And I've had this conversation with like my campaign team and I'm like, listen, I am Buffy. Like this is who I am and I'm going to run as who I am. Mm -hmm. And if people like it, great. And if they don't, that's okay too. But I can't, I can't not be who I am. I have to be authentic or else what's the point? When I told my neighbor that I was running and she said, wait, are you going to get a Hillary Clinton haircut? <laughs> You're like, I'm not 70. I'm I was just like, running no, I'm for keeping office. my hair the way it is. I'm keeping loud. my hair the way it is. So oh my God. I will not change fundamentally as a person, but I hope that I can um, fight for what I believe in. Well, here. I'm going to hold the, I'm going to hold you to that as your first campaign <laughs> yeah. promise. Nothing will change. I feel like I'm like, mom, you're having a baby. What's this going to be <laughs> right, like? Exactly. Is everything going to change? Are you going to love me still? I, you're like, you're my best girl, Sally. <laughs> You'll always be my favorite. <laughs> well, very excited. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody that you can look up to and uh, as a model female office holder is our friend, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. I had the opportunity to sit down with her recently. I know you guys have met before. 
Yes, I'm a big fan of hers. Um, so should we get to it? Let's get to Kirsten. All right. Bye, um, Sally. Love you, Buffy. So proud of you. No, thanks, honey. High fives. High fives. <laughs> <laughs> this season of The Riveters is brought to you by Amalgamated Bank. Not all banks are created equal. Not all banks invest in progressive causes. Not all banks champion women's rights, workers' rights, and immigrants' rights. Not all banks are committed to a greener, more sustainable planet. Not all banks seek true financial opportunity for all. But this one does. Amalgamated Bank, the bank of the progressive community. Move your money to Amalgamated. To learn more, visit amalgamatedbank.com forward slash riveters. Member FDIC. Hi, I'm here with Senator Gillibrand. Thank you so much for joining the Riveters. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. And you're an extra special guest because I hear someone in your family was an actual Riveter back in the day. True fact. Uh, my great-grandmother uh, and my grandmother and my great-aunt all worked at the Waterville Arsenal during World War II, and they were Rosies. That's so cool. And has that shaped you in any way? For sure. Uh, and... The, the nature of the women in my family is pretty interesting. They're all very tough. They're all very self-sufficient. Uh, they've all worked almost their entire lives. And so for my great-grandmother, uh, she was so bold that she kicked out her alcoholic husband uh, because she didn't want that kind of person around her and her family. And she kept him away for decades because he wouldn't give up his drinking. Uh, my grandmother worked her whole life. She was a secretary in our state legislature from the time she was 18. And my mother was one of only three women in her law school class and uh, was somebody who, by the time she was my age, was a second degree black belt in karate. So I had really strong women role models as a young girl, women who really owned their ambition, who were willing to um, fight against the status quo and were willing to do things differently. That's pretty amazing. Um, we see you as a role model. So thank you so much for all that you do for, uh, you know, we have a lot of female listeners, mostly in their 20s and 30s. Um, and they've been asking to have you on the podcast for the last year. So we're really excited to well, have you. You're really inspiring so many of us. Thank you to your listeners. I'm really grateful. And we're, you know, so many of us are a part of the resistance mm -hmm. and as are you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people have really categorized you as a leader in the resistance. Do you see yourself that way? Well, I see myself a little more as part of something much larger than myself. I really feel like I'm part of the resistance. And I feel that all of us are called to speak out at this moment in time, that all of us really need to fight for what we believe in because our values are not being represented in Washington. And in fact, a lot of our values are being rejected by those in power in Washington. And so what we need to do is push back, fight back, march, make calls, use Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We need to be heard on whatever platform we have access to. And interestingly, uh, the, this democratization of democracy is really powerful. And you don't know whose tweet's going to go viral. You don't right. know whose opinion is the one that's going to change everyone else's opinion. And so it's making it possible for any young woman, any person at all, to become more powerful than they ever imagined because they might be the one to say it just the right way or create the funny meme that goes viral. I mean, you don't know how your influence could take shape and where and how far it could go. But as a senator, you do have a 
bigger platform than most of us. I mean, I can only hope that my tweets will go viral and I'm obviously very witty, but they haven't yet. So <laughs> keep trying. <laughs> Given that you have such a big platform, do you have a strategy on how you're going to use that as part of the resistance? Very much so. And yes, I do have a outsized platform because I'm a U.S. senator. So sometimes press will cover what I say. Sometimes they'll carry my speech from the Senate floor. Uh, sometimes they'll publish my op-ed. And what I really um, am excited about is how much uh, amplification the grassroots can do effectively. So I might send a tweet out that I'm upset about President Trump's uh, budget and how it's cutting uh, money for food for women and infants or cutting all all uh, money for the arts. When somebody retweets that to their 10,000 followers or their 300 followers, it just keeps going around the world. And so that opinion can go far and wide. And the case for why that's a terrible decision by the president uh, can can be sent not just by myself, but anyone who agrees with that view. And so together, we're even more powerful. And when your law firm in New York didn't have a maternity leave policy, speaking of policies, you wrote one for them. It's no secret how far behind the the U.S. is from the, from the rest, rest of the, of the world, world. Yep. in terms of maternity and paternity leave. And it's also something Ivanka Trump has made a big plea for when she introduced her her father at the uh, the RNC, the, the convention. Um, and you're looking to have Senator Collins co-sign your Family Act bill. So you clearly do see bipartisan support here. But do you see any hope from the White House on these issues? Well, to tie together our last point with this first so having a national paid leave plan is a national priority. It's it's one of my greatest priorities. I think it's the one thing that can actually address people's economic challenges when you have people struggling to make ends meet, when you have uh, families that are in crisis. You need to have national paid leave. You need to be with your mother if she's dying of cancer. You need to be with your spouse if he's very ill. You need to be with that infant uh, for the first few months. All parents need that. All people need it to have that flexibility. And we've made the business case about why this is so important. We've already established California's had it for 10 years. 90% of businesses said it had no negative impact or a positive impact on their bottom line. And 99% said it increased morale, retention, um, goodwill. So it's a win-win for everybody. It helps the economy grow. It keeps workers in the workplace. It allows women, particularly who tend to be caregivers, to reach their full economic potential because they don't have to quit. They don't have to ramp off every time there's a family emergency. And that's only if they can afford it. For those few who, the, for those many who can't afford it, it means they suffer. They suffer horribly because they can't be with their new baby. They can't be with their parent when they're dying or very gravely ill. And so this works for America on every level. And so I was really excited during the Republican convention when Ivanka gave her speech. I thought she spoke beautifully. And I was delighted that this was something she wanted to work on. I was disappointed when her father's plan was not what we needed. It was just a few weeks paid for moms only of birth mothers. And so, so limiting because all, y you want to be there for the other family events. So if you have a child, I, I, I met a mom who's child got hit by a car and he had to be in a wheelchair for five months. She needed to be with her, her, her son. And so she took the time off, uh, 
but it needed five months, not three. So right. they have to hold her job for three months unpaid. And then they fired her because she needed five months. That's just terrible. And she never got hired in her industry at the same seniority level than when she left. But she needed to be with her child. So we need family leave for all family events, a dying parent, a dying spouse, an ill family member. And so that's why the Trump administration's plan isn't great. Um, I'm still going to advocate, though, for a better plan. And to, to my original point, this is where the grassroots can come in. So for all your listeners, be heard on having a national paid leave plan. And if you do it as national insurance, it's really cheap. The way we wrote the bill, it's $2 a week. So it's the same as the cost of a cup of coffee a week. That's something we can afford. I can afford to buy a, cost of, a cup of coffee for myself every week. And my employer can afford to buy me a cup of coffee a week. And if you did that, you'd have guaranteed national paid leave for all these life events inexpensively. For a small business that only has four employees, they can put aside $108 uh, a year for each employee. They can afford to do that. Uh, you know, if they have those four employees, that's $432. They can afford to do that. And it makes a difference. So I think our advocacy around paid leave will make the difference. And I think your l listeners are the ones who could push it over uh, the finish line because the all the studies show America's already behind this. I think the last statistic I read is more than half of white male Republicans were behind national paid leave uh, for w Democratic women off the charts. I mean, it's something that all Americans want. And so I think we should fight for it. Absolutely. And we appreciate that you're fighting for it. It's it's so important to so many of us. And we've talked a lot of on the podcast about women holding each other up and really working together. And you've worked hard to pass a bill on sexual assault in the military that some Democrats, including Senator McCaskill, voted against. And now you're working with Senator McCaskill on sexual assault on college campus. Can you tell us how you both agree to disagree on some issues and create a strong front together on others? Well, my worldview is pretty simple. Uh, my job is to make a difference and to help people. My job is to find common ground wherever I can, build consensus, and help people. And so Claire and I are working together really hard on trying to end the scourge of sexual violence on college campuses. And it was an area that desperately needed leadership. And we, with uh, several other senators, wrote a really strong bill, bipartisan bill, um, which I think is is could be transformational. So we have people like Joni Ernst and Shelley Moore Capito on the Republican side helping us as well, plus a bunch of the men. Uh, and it's a bill that would require every two years universities to have a nationwide survey. So you could actually write and and document how you feel on your college campus every other year. You know, do I feel safe? Have I ever been assaulted? If I was assaulted, did I report it? If I didn't report, why not? Uh, how does the administration re review these cases? Do people feel retaliated against? A university will have a very clear uh, view of what's going on in their campuses if we had this nationwide survey. So that's the, the most important component of the bill. And I'm optimistic that we could pass this bill uh, if we get a vote on it. And so again, for your listeners, uh, really advocating to let's vote on the, it's called the CASA bill. And uh, I think that's the kind of solution that can make a huge difference um, if we could pass it because it's widely bipartisan. Claire and I don't agree on everything. Uh, we both want to end sexual violence in the military. I want a very bold solution that would allow the decisions to be taken out of the chain of command and given to trained military prosecutors. And in fact, the reports just came out uh, that the prevalence rate is extraordinarily high. The retaliation rate is also high. And most disturbing is the rate of prosecution, the rate of conviction, and the rate of, of 
of successful uh, prosecution is, is really as low as it's ever been. It's not budged in the last five years. And so we're not sending enough of these rapists to jail. We're not holding them accountable. The justice system within the military isn't working. Well, it's, it's a relief to hear that there are bipartisan efforts still because it feels like our country is becoming more and more divided. Do you feel like the Senate is becoming more divided or is it not reflective of what's happening out in, uh, you know, the outside of the, of the Senate? So I, I think the Senate works well together largely when senators leave the partisan politics at the door, reach across party lines and get things done. And I think that happens more often than not with the women senators. I think they're quite good at listening to one another and finding common ground and building from there, which is one of the reasons why I work so hard to elect more women. I mean, if you really want to transform Washington, you'd have 51% of women in Congress. Because if you had a reflective Congress, uh, you'd have more people that I think share my worldview that we're really here to help people. And if we're not, we should go home. And so that's the thing that I want to focus on. And that's why I want more women, because I feel like more often than not, we're better at at leaving the policy, partisan politics aside and, and working together to build that consensus. And it's so exciting that I used to work at Emily's List back in the day, and uh, I heard they have 11,000 women that have signed up to run. run for office. Yes. And so exciting. The year before, only 900. Yeah. So what would you say to those 11,000 women? And also, obviously, our millions of listeners who are, yes, are thinking we, about it, but maybe intimidated by the process. Well, we need them. And they and, and when they run, they will win. It is Women are so uniquely qualified. And sometimes we're our own biggest doubters. We'll think, oh, I don't have enough experience. Oh, I need to run for this local office first, or, oh, I'm not tough enough, or I don't know enough about the issues. That's not right. I mean, you are tough enough. You do know about the issues. And what makes you such a great candidate is what you are concerned about. Your worldview is different from what we have in Washington. It's different than what we have in a lot of state houses. Um, Your perspective on what needs to be fixed and your perspective on how you're going to fix it is probably quite different than the rest of the people who are elected. And so bringing your diversity to the table is the difference that will be made and why you will be so successful in the job when you get elected. So I would urge all listeners, please run, run on the issue you care most about, show your passion and, and fight for what you believe in. And we need you. We really do need you. Absolutely. Um, and we're again, like just people really like you. Do you know that? Aww. <laughs> like you have a, you have a really solid reputation as somebody who is well liked, um, by your colleagues, by your staff, I was talking to one of your staff members yesterday who said, you know, you just have an enormous um, ability to provide empathy to others and to show mm-hmm. empathy. And you, um, you know, you're just very friendly with your staff. We were just sitting here earlier as I was setting up and, you know, listening to you guys kind of banter back and forth. Um, you, you're just very friendly and nice. So it it's interesting. I are we getting to a place where women don't have to be either the B word or, you know, the, the helper, the yeah. one who gets like puts the cookies out? Do you feel like you can be <laughs> all of those different things? Um, yeah. Nice that somebody that people like, but also like a go getter when yeah. it comes time to it. Cause I know you have a reputation for being as one person said a honey badger yeah. as well. Yeah. I can be a pain in the um, <laughs> anyway. We um, can curse on this. Really? It's fine. I get in trouble anyway. Um, so I, I think women can be whoever they are quite quite successfully today. I think it was much harder for previous generations. Uh, for I think for my mother's generation and the one before her, I think women felt enormous pressure to leave their femininity, femininity behind and to be the best man in the room every time. Right. Um, I think perhaps 50, 50 I'm 50, and I, I think perhaps women my age and younger um, 
are feeling some of the fruits of the work that our mothers and grandmothers have done. I think we now feel we can be who we are. We have more latitude uh, to embrace all aspects of our personalities. And if we need to be tough, we can be very tough. If we need to be loving and kind, we can be that. Um, we can be all attributes and still be a leader. And we're defining leadership differently. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about this ability to listen and this ability to empathize. Those are such important um, abilities for any public servant because our job is to serve others. And you can only serve others if you can empathize with their with their worry, with their trauma, with their challenge, with their fear, and then build a solution to, to, to fight against that. And so you need those qualities. And, and that's why I want more women in government, because I think more often than not, women bring those qualities to the table and, to, and it's very much part of their leadership quality. Absolutely. And you have, although to, to switch gears a little bit, to white people don't like you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure that you ask my eight-year-olds, mommy, you're the worst mommy ever. <laughs> Henry was most upset yesterday because I wouldn't change our pathway home so we could battle a gym, which is a Pokemon expression if you don't know. Okay. Yeah, so I didn't I, know. So I am not a perfect mother because I will not let him do his Pokemon gym battling when he wants to. I'm pretty sure saying no means sometimes <laughs> means you're a good mom. <laughs> but you have, you have gotten criticism about, you know, some what people call flip-flopping on progressive issues to kind of meet the moment. And do you think that if the resistance pushes leaders too far to the left, we'll just engulf the nation's fragmentation and remain completely divided? And how do you respond to the criticism about uh, the changes you've had on policy? Well, for myself, um, those changes came because I really had a lot to learn. I mean, I, I represented... Uh, when I was first elected, a very rural uh, upstate New York district that didn't have a lot of diversity and didn't have a lot of the challenges that other parts of my state have. And so when I was first appointed, I realized very quickly um, I needed to learn a lot more about a lot of things that I just, I wasn't sensitive enough to. I hadn't thought through long and hard enough. I hadn't empathized enough with the challenges of New Yorkers and other parts of the state. So like, if you look at the issue of guns, um, in my rural district, guns meant hunting. You know, for most people, it's really important to be able to go hunting. They, um, you know, it's part of not only the uh, local pastime, but it's very much part of the culture. It's who folks are. We didn't have the issue of gang violence and gun crime on the same level as other parts of the state. So when I started to meet with parents who had lost their children to stray bullets, teenage girl uh, lost the th in the high school years. I mean, devastating for this family, devastating for the community. And I hadn't put myself in that mother's shoes before. I had not put myself in that community before. And so I very quickly said, that's not enough. I need to do much more. And so my interest in becoming a leader on ending gun violence changed immediately. And so I wanted to write the bill that was necessary to fix some of the problems. For this community, our biggest problem is guns get trafficked into it every day. Um, no one's buying a gun at a gun show or at Walmart. They're actually buying guns directly out of the back of a truck, being sold to them by a gun trafficker directly into the hands of criminals. And so I needed to make that a federal crime. And so because of those meetings and because of those parents that I met with, I wanted to fight for them. I wanted to be their voice, their advocate. And that's what our job's about. Um, similarly on immigration, I, I hadn't met with families who were 
afraid of being torn apart. I met with a young man yesterday who, I mean, he's telling me how horrible it is to be in high school and know that your parents could be taken away any given day and that instability it creates and that fear it creates in your family. I needed to know that to be stronger, better, and a better advocate for comprehensive immigration reform. I needed to know what those lives were like. And I hadn't made the time to do that. And I felt terrible about, terribly about that. I felt like I should have done more. I should have known more. I should have cared more. And so I think any leader should be able to learn and learn from their mistakes and learn how to be a better leader on issues you may not be an expert on. And I certainly have. And I think there should be more people who are willing to do that. Absolutely. You've seen the, I'm sure you've seen the videos of, you know, kids chanting like build a wall at their, you know, junior high classmates and they're crying and they're, you know, there's been all kinds of bullying and it really feels like there's a deficit of empathy right now in, in America. I don't know if it's just being covered more or if it's, it certainly feels like it's increasing and it's certainly like social norms feel like they're changing. What can we do about that? I think we have to continue to lead by example. And I think the more I certainly as a parent, I'm constantly trying to teach my children to be kind to one another, to stand up against a bully, to protect those who are vulnerable, to imagine what it would feel like to be persecuted or to be taunted or to be made fun of based on who you are. Um, And my children are learning that every day. Uh, But I think as a legislator, as a leader, we have to push back against bullies in all forms. So when President Trump does something that I think is disgraceful, I push back. I will fight back against whatever policies I think are marginalizing people. It's why so many people ran to Battery Park uh, when he signed that first immigration ban. Uh, when when you say a whole class of people based on their religion can't come to this country, it's antithetical to our values that we believe in religious freedom. We are a country founded on religious freedom. When you, um, y- when you don't acknowledge that this country is founded by immigrants, that we welcome diversity, that our strength is our diversity, that demands immediate response. So I push back as hard as I can. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I voted against a lot of those nominees. I mean, some of them were just, their values were so contrary to mine and had records of, of doing things that I consider either hateful, inappropriate, or just wrong. And so... That's why I vote no. It's why I say no. It's why I push back on the president. I, I don't agree. And I don't, I'm don't. i not going to stand here and do nothing. And does that hurt your ability to do bipartisan work on other on, in other areas? I don't think so. I think you know, a lot of my job is with other senators, and the White House isn't that involved in the legislative process, to be honest. And so I think I can do great work with my colleagues, whether or not President Trump agrees or not. Well, he's at Mar-a-Lago golfing, so so he's not not paying paying attention. attention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you've often credit Hillary Clinton with inspiring you to run for office and advising you throughout your career. What's that relationship like? Does she still mentor you? Well, Hillary really did play a significant uh, part in my life. She really inspired me when she went to China as our first lady and gave that speech where she said women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. It really affected me because I was just a young lawyer uh, representing big clients and thinking, wow, she's changing the world. And knowing me, I was most upset because I wasn't invited to the conference in Beijing. I had been an Asian studies major at Dartmouth. I'd learned Mandarin. I'd studied in the dorms in Beijing and I loved politics. So I thought, why aren't I there? 
I realized I wasn't there because I wasn't involved in politics at that time. So that's what got me off the sidelines, got me engaged to start doing political work. I joined a women's club and our first speaker happened to be Hillary Clinton. And the thing she said at that first event I went to stuck with me. She, she looked out into the crowd and she said, decisions are being made every day in Washington. And if you are not part of those decisions and you don't like what they decide, you have no one to blame but yourself. And I thought she was talking to me. And so I'm the back of the room starting to sweat and getting anxious, thinking to myself, I'm not ready to run for office. And I wasn't. It took me 10 years from that moment to run. But during that 10 years, I got ready to run and I helped other candidates get elected. I learned how to help them by raising money and organizing women and organizing lawyers and um, working on policy papers. And I learned how to go door to door and do grassroots organizing. And it was really, really fun. And the more I got involved, the more I wanted to do public service. And so uh, she was really important to me. And I, and I first got to know her when I worked on her campaign as a volunteer, helping to raise money. And she was always there for me. Anytime I needed a little bit of advice, I could get two minutes here, two minutes there. And so I, I really appreciate all the sacrifices Hillary has made. And I think she's a role model for all of us. I haven't seen her since the campaign um, and not gotten to talk to her, but uh, I really do appreciate how much she's done for this country. Absolutely. And she's sort of the patron saint of the Riveters podcast, <laughs> Ro Rosie and Hillary. Um, and we have to ask, you know, because... Obviously, 2020 is a really big year. Mm -hmm. So tell us what's happening. Well, one of the exciting things for 2020 <laughs> is it's going to be the celebration of 100 years <laughs> since the women got the right to vote since 1920. And so... Obviously, the question I was going to ask. I know. So keep I, going I, I, could, I could read your mind. Suffrage. And so... Um, the nice thing is, is uh, we are hopefully going to pass a piece of legislation that's going to create a commission, a celebratory commission like we had in 1770 to celebrate 1776 uh, in 1976 when I was 10 years old. And I remember the Freedom Train riding into Albany to teach kids about the revolution and uh, the Declaration of Independence. And so we want to teach kids uh, in celebration of 2020 about suffrage. And so I've been doing a lot of reading and studying and visiting sites around the state as part of passing this piece of legislation. Legislation. And I got to tell you, their stories are amazing. These women fought so hard, harder than I think any of your listeners can even imagine. Susan B. Anthony, so one, one effort she was trying to make was allowing women to have a right to own things, own property. Property rights were really important and they couldn't. Their husbands took everything. And she, she took her seven years of traveling around the state, going town to town, talking to this with legislators, going to Albany, but she finally passed it. Uh, she spent her whole adult life trying to get suffrage passed. She never saw it passed, but she inspired the next generation to carry that torch the next mile. And so we are all standing on the shoulders of these women who did extraordinary things with their lives. The funniest little fact I learned was um, when they were trying to convince uh, Woodrow Wilson to pass suffrage, the women from New York, they wanted to march in Washington. They were going to have this march uh, the, the day uh, before inauguration. The women marched from New York State to Washington and then participated. So they had a 17-day march wow. leading up to the march in Washington. I mean, That's in the so middle badass. of winter. This was in January. <laughs> I mean, imagine anyone, any one of us saying, I'm going to do a 17-day walk to D.C. and oh I'm going to put my snow boots on and my hat and gloves and do it. That's what these women did. It was amazing. So there's a lot they they uh, they endured. Um 
And it's incredible to read about their lives because it gives me strength to fight and to keep pushing when sometimes you feel like you can't possibly push anymore or you can't possibly carry this issue because you're never going to win. Yes, you can. You could carry it for 100 years if you need to. You just keep pushing and it will happen. So, and that leads me to to what's happening now. You know, how do we sustain all of this energy? Yeah. Um, Because it's... and I think you know this, it's easier for a bunch of us to be against something. Yeah. You know, like I remember the George W. Bush years yeah, yeah. and like bringing Obama and it was and then much harder to build a coalition of what you're for. Yeah. So how do and, and even just the sustaining the against part is going to be tough. How do we do it? Well, the women are already leading the way. I mean, mm. you are, I assume you went to a march somewhere in of the course. world. Yes. It was an amazing day. It was. I, I thought the women's I march. I lot. cried the whole day. I was just <laughs> in this in this state of awe. I was so inspired. I was so excited to be there. It was truly the most inspiring moment in my political life. And I loved how the movement was so intersectional. I mean, I saw signs for Black Lives Matter. I saw signs for immigration rights, for LGBT equality, for women's reproductive rights, for clean air, clean water. I mean, there wasn't an issue that wasn't represented. And that's what I loved about it, that people could come together all issues to say, I need to be heard. And so it was, what are you for? It really was, what do you believe in? What do you want to fight for? What's important to this country? And I think the women and the grassroots in total has not given up. The fact that they immediately went to every international airport uh, right after the Muslim ban, the fact that they pushed back against Trump care so hard, so fast, so consistently, they're feeling their, their power. I have a girlfriend who lives in Denver. She's a lawyer and busy mom, but she calls her Senator every morning for 20 minutes. So she can just log in what she's unhappy about and which vote she doesn't like (laughs) and what she expects of him. And it's her thing. And so everybody can develop their thing. You're doing podcasts. Some people are going to do Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook. Some people will do traditional letters to the editor. Some people will just write their congressman every day about whatever makes you feel like you're being heard. It's all valuable. Don't let anyone tell you that this doesn't matter. It does matter. The fact that we were so angry about getting rid of Obamacare and didn't like what they were offering we showed it. We showed it in all 50 states. So there wasn't a congressperson who didn't feel uncomfortable. And that's how we defeated Trump care. So and it's going to happen again this week. So we're going to need your voice again. Um, So I think sustaining this is very possible and is necessary. And I think it's important to people know how important their voices are and that it's working. It absolutely is. And it's so inspiring. And I love how positive it feels too when you're out there. It wasn't like everybody's so angry. I just have one more question for you. What are three concrete things our listeners can do to meaningfully engage in the resistance? And mind you, this is going to air May 11th. Yes. So (laughs) the most important thing is to be heard and you can choose your platform. So the, the, the options are you can write letters to the editor. You can write letters to your congressperson. You can send emails. You can make phone calls. You can use all forms of social media to get your views out. Use comedy. Use your um, your artistic skills. Use any talent you have to project far and wide. Um, if you feel like you could do it, you should run for office. If you really think like you can do this, that you feel called, you feel able, you feel willing, then run for office. And it doesn't matter if it's for school board. It doesn't matter if it's for Congress. Um, run. And then you have to ask every person you've ever met to help you. And uh, If you don't feel like you're cut out for running, 
find a candidate who shares your values and help her. Uh, And that means sending her five bucks every week, or it means retweeting her tweets for her, or it means, um, you know, just amplifying what her message is. That's meaningful. So any way of being heard is the goal and knowing in your heart that it really does matter. So you don't give up or stop because if we all do it constantly and continuously, we will win. We will win these races in 18 and we will defeat Donald Trump. Absolutely. I loved talking to you. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And, um, you know, we do, I know you've denied that you're going to run for president, but we're holding out secret hope. Do you want to break any news right now on the Riveters podcast about that? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be entirely focused on running for Senate in 2018. I'm just going to edit that to where you said yes from something earlier. <laughs> we're going to splice it in. Well, we hope you change your mind and we'll all support you if you're there. Hannah's going to leave me from L.A. and come work for you. She's already told me. So (laughs) thank you again. I know you have to run. You're very busy and important. And uh, we'll see you in next season. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. As always, check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate and review us. And you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Riveters Pod. And of course, as always, I like to thank our amazing and wonderful staff, Casey Wolf, our executive producer, Sarah McKaney, who's our content director, Al Daniels, our sound engineer, and by the way, the only dude on our team, Emily Dalton-Niles, our digital director, Manisha Manaparuma, our web director, Hannah Cradock, our research director, and Lauren Thorbjornsson, our promotions director. Thanks again, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>